Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you and praise you, Lord, for your word today. And Lord, though I don't know where we're going, but you do. I pray, Father, that you would give us ears to hear and that you would speak to our hearts and help us to understand. Help me to understand that, Lord, as we look into your word, that, Lord, we're searching it out more and more and more and more. Because, Lord, you have much to say that we still yet do not fully understand. We can read the Bible over and over and over again. And what takes place, Lord, is that we're learning something new constantly. Yes, we repeat some of the same ground because, Lord, we really haven't caught it yet. And you're not like one of those teachers who just passes on just to get rid of us. You retain us, Lord, until we grasp it and we can live it out. And I pray, Father, that you minister to us this morning. Help us to see your church as we go through this time. And help us, Lord, to not be embarrassed by your church, but to help see what you really want from your church. And, Lord, we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me preface this series that we're getting ready to go through in this fashion. In Scripture, there's not much about church. Very little. What's a lot in Scripture is concerning the attitude and behavior of the saints of God that make up the church. In Ephesians, you start off with the first three chapters talking about doctrine, basically. But when you get to chapter 4, Paul says, walk worthy now of your calling. And he talks about the new mind. And the whole issue is that now our behavior. In 1 Corinthians, he talks about, boy, in chapter 3, I would have fed you with meat, but you were more worldly and fleshly. And he begins to talk about their behavior. Most of us say that we're Christians, but we're a long way from acting like Christians. Even Pastor Brown, I'm still learning. Because this old man in me sometimes still wants to jump up. And I have to recognize, and I have to tell him sometimes, you're dead. <laughs> you're dead. And sometimes you have to tell yourself and remind yourself, you're dead in order that you can be alive unto Christ. The church is a strange animal, and we're going to look at some of it. Because the church is not really this building. It's just a place where we gather the church is each and every one of us. We make up the church. Our body is the temple of God that where he dwells. But we as a group then make up the church. When you go back to the Genesis 1, what did God make first? Man or earth? He made earth. And then around verse 26, it says that he created man. 
Now he has a place for man to what? To dwell, to live. Now what I want you to catch in this little illustration is simply this. God is a God of order. And he always functions in order. Confusion is always of the enemy. Confusion is always of Satan. He wants to keep you in confusion. He wants to keep you in darkness. He wants to keep you not living like the image of Jesus Christ. And oftentimes in the church, we can't understand it all. And we don't see it. Abraham's called, but Abraham don't know all that God has planned for him. Abraham goes out, but out of Abraham, God makes this promise. You will be the father of many nations. Did Abraham understand that? No. No. But did it come to pass? Yes. If the church does not or do not match up to people's expectation, it simply can't grow. That is false. That is false. And oftentimes the church is trying to meet all the expectations of who? Of the people. It's trying to give the people what the people want rather than what God wants. And that makes a huge difference. Because the church oftentimes forget that Jesus Christ is the head of his church. Jesus Christ is. I don't care how big we may become or how small we are. Christ is still the head, not the people. Now, in our culture and society... We have a democracy. God is a theocracy. God don't ask me to vote on his commands. God doesn't ask you to vote on what he has stated to be truth and how he directs you. You can either choose to live it and be blessed or not live it and be cursed. Your choice. Secondly, if the church doesn't entertain and allow for excitement, the church will not grow. Now, in reality, the church' first purpose and main purpose is not to entertain. Nothing wrong with skits, Nothing wrong with the other things that we do to entertain. But they can never take the place of the word of God. And what happens with man, with the fleshly part of us, we don't know how to balance that. So in many places, you may have a good 45 minutes of singing, 15 minutes of the word. And then another 15 minutes of singing and closing. You have to judge what is important to you. If it's the learning about the Christian life or is it entertainment? 
is it educating your mind and, and your heart where the issues of life flow from, that you can walk in the will of God, that you're willing to learn it, or are you more desirable of entertainment where the flesh really rejoices? And we can get the bouncing. I like to dance too sometimes. I like to bounce sometimes. But I've got to balance that in my life. All I'm doing in life is dancing and bouncing. And when I go out there, I don't know how to fight the battle. A lot of Christians can look good in church. They'll scream, shout, yell, and do everything else. But when you really look at their lives... They can have that. People will not come to a boring church. But what's boring? That's questionable. What's boring? Boring is that thing that says, I'm not excited about this. But guess what? Somebody else, they just love it. What we don't understand about being bored is the individual personal life. It's not the atmosphere around you. It's that your life is boring. Your life is dead. But guess what? You're looking for something to give us what? Life. You're, giving, you're looking for something that makes you excited. And, and, huh, and it only lasts what? For a very short time. But if you really understand a relationship with Jesus Christ, you begin to understand the joy of the Lord in my life is what excites me. What God is doing in my life is exciting. And I experience him in a very personal way. That's exciting. Not so much that I just come to church and I jump up and down and I'm excited for a half hour or or 45 minutes and then when I go back home, I'm out there. I'm ready to fight again. How many of you leave church and go home and fight with your wives or fight with your children? What was the purpose of coming to church? How many of you men have said in your home, like Elaine and I, there's not going to be no, you don't hit me and I don't hit you. Now, she hasn't kept that all the time, but. <laughs> but no fighting in our house. Why? We're a Christian couple. We're a Christian couple. She don't batter me, I don't batter her. We don't. Abuse each other mentally. Why? We're Christians. We're Christians. If you're bored, it's because of your own personal life. Is the church is boring or the person's life boring? And they're looking for excitement. They're looking for something that hasn't satisfied them yet. If you really know the Lord Jesus Christ, He becomes that which satisfies you. Not the pastor, not the elders, deacons, not the message per se, 
But the personal relationship you have with Jesus Christ becomes satisfying and fulfilling in your life. In the experience only, church, the experience has to keep bringing new forms of excitement Sunday after Sunday. Oh, you're gone. People want to experience something new each week, and it has to be promoted more and more. If it is the experience only, then the pastor himself loses something. He becomes more of a showman than a pastor teacher or a shepherd. Big difference between a showman and somebody who is teaching and someone who is shepherding or giving oversight over people. Huge difference. Now, church is a place of learning. And guess what we don't want to do? My aunt was right. If you want to hide something from some folks, just put it where? How many of you read during the week? Yeah. And in your reading, you're constantly what? Learning. And you're constantly exploring. And you're constantly having to use your imagination of what the writer is putting down there. But when you don't read, you're not expanding this mind. You're not exploring. You're not allowing your mind to really be used. So you need to be reading biographies. Yes, you need to be reading other scripture right. Yes, you need to be searching out like Melvin said, because why? It's going to cause you to actively get involved. Up here. God didn't give you this up here to turn it off. He wants you to turn it on. And the church is a place of learning where we come in and challenge each other. Sunday school this morning was a time of learning. Like some things we don't actually know, but boy, because Scripture gives us the ability to imagine and to think and to explore, we can ask the questions and there is no dumb question. Why? We're learning. We're learning. It's not a right or wrong sometimes. It's the thing that causes you to search something out and go a little deeper with it and to learn. Now, understand this principle also. If you're not interested in the Christian life, church is not the place for you. Really. If you're not really interested in learning how to walk with Christ and live for Christ and to walk in the will of Christ, Church is not the place for you. A lot of Christians will just sit at home and they'll never understand the body reaction that takes place in church. We'll never understand that iron sharpens iron. Christians sharpen each other. Christians help each other. If we could get the church to be like AA, we'd have more honest confessions and wouldn't be all these hidden lies we wouldn't have all these little saying I'm blessed by the best and I look at your life and I don't want that blessing church is a place to learn 
for the purpose of making corrections in your life. See, I don't have to, I'll never forget what one of the professors told us. Never try to pinpoint people's lives and their problems and preach about them. If you stay in the scripture and teach the scripture, eventually the Holy Spirit gets to it. (laughs) And you don't have to hobby horse on things. You just teach scripture, and as you're in scripture and going through scripture, the Holy Spirit brings out what the people have need of. And in any group of people, there are different needs. So I may not hit your need today, but I'll hit somebody's. I may not uh, hit what you're seeking to understand, but I'll hit somebody. But if you keep coming back, the Holy Spirit is going to speak to you and minister to you because he knows your needs. And the church has to learn how to balance that thing of entertainment and real worship. Church should be a place I can laugh. Church should be a place that, yes, I can sing and enjoy myself. Church should be a place where I can jump and say, hallelujah, praise God. Church should be a place of freedom for me. But church mainly should be a place where you come to learn how to live a Christian life. If that is missing, all the other stuff is just stuff and junk. It's like eating a lot of candy. Now, now I'm going to confess. See, as I think back about my life and a little episode that happened to me a month or two ago, I started remembering in my desk drawer from Elaine, I had all these little chocolate-covered raisins and stuff. And during the day, I'd just be eating my chocolate cover, not knowing what was taking place on the inside. Hey. And boy, I had to come in after I thought about pulling things out the drawer and throw them away. Hey. Because see, without constant learning, you're going to dabble in sin, you're going to dabble over here, and you're going to dabble in this, and you're going to be in a little bottle of that. But see, as you come to church and you're learning, the Holy Spirit eventually is going to slap you all aside your head. And you know then what you need to do. Because he's bringing the correction. He's bringing the balance into your life. When you look in Exodus 31, verse 6, it says, Moses is told that God has given skills to all the craftsmen when it comes to the tent of meeting, when it comes to the tabernacle. God put that together. God put that tabernacle completely together where he would meet with his people and he would come down in the Kashana glory. But he designed the cups. He designed the poles. He designed everything and gave men the skills to do it because he did it. And men then just had to follow the instructions of God and how to put these things together. But remember this little point. God gave the skills. God gave the skills. And then in Leviticus, all the offerings. 
how they were to behave and what they were to offer and what they were to do and so forth and how they were to bring it. God gave them all the instructions of that and how they would worship him. Turn with me to Second Chronicles 22. Now we get to the temple because God's going to do something God designed the tent. God designs the temple. But man then are the ones who build it. The tent of meetings was something that traveled with Israel. The temple was someplace that was in a location. One location. So picking up in verse 2, He says, is that where I want to be at? Maybe it's in First Chronicles. I'm over in Second Chronicles. That's why I'm reading so much difference. First Chronicles. Did I tell y'all Second Chronicles? See, this old man in his mind, y'all better get ready. Pick up with me in verse 2. He says, So David gave orders to the assembly, the aliens living in Israel, and from among them he appointed stone cutters to prepare dressed stone for building the house of God. Who are the aliens? Those are individuals who are now living with them, but they're not what? Hebrews, they're not Jews. But they have a part to play also. Go a little bit further. In verse 3, he provided a large amount of iron to make nails for the doors and the gateways and for the fitting and more bronze than could be weighed. He also provided more cedar logs than could be counted. For Sonnenes and Tyra had bought large number of them to David. And David said, my son Solomon is young and inexperienced. And the house to be built for the Lord should be of great magnificence and fame and splendor. What is he saying about his son? He's inexperienced. He don't know how to handle these things. I'm more experienced. I'm older. I, I can handle this better than my son. Giving God his excuse. And he goes on and he says, The Lord should be of great magnificence and fame and splendor in the sight of all the nations. So they're going to build something that all the nations can what? Look to. That this would be something far grander than any nation has. The Taj Mahal is declared to be one of the seventh wonders of the world. And when I was standing in the Taj Mahal in the bedroom chamber of the king, and his wife was buried across 
the river, every point of that room, I don't care how you were facing it, he could see his wife's tomb. I don't care where you were looking at in that room, you could see his wife's tomb. How they did that, I don't know. And come to find out, yes, they had one of the first showers in the mountains up there, and they brought it down, and the openings for the water to come out. Boy, you stand in the shower room. I mean, it's a good-sized room, so there's one, more than one person taking a shower. But the whole process is that they had it. And it is one of the seven wonders because the gentleman who built it, when the king paid him, made sure he would never build it again because he cut off both his hands. They would not be able to duplicate that building. And here, this is going to be a building that all nations are going to marvel over. And he goes on, he says, Then he called for his son Solomon and charged him, to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build. Take that for a moment. It's not about what you want to do for the Lord. It's what the Lord wants to do through the individuals who he chooses to do it. David said, In my heart. I want to do this. I have a desire to do it for the Lord. But the flesh cannot glorify God. But God who can glorify himself through man can do it. Catch that picture. Your heart may desire to do some great things for God, but I'm going to ask you this. Is that what God's asking you to do? Is that what God's will is for your life? And you may love the Lord and you want to do that. See, I've learned something. Well, when I was over in India, on the way, I bought this necklace and this bracelet, and I bought these things. And, and, and boy, I priced what it would cost in America, and then I uh, got it in India at a real reduced price because things are just much cheaper. Bought it home for my wife. We don't know where that thing's at. Because her taste is different than my taste. That, not that she didn't appreciate it, because when I gave it to her, I got a kiss, I got a hug. But that was the end of it. Because her taste for things are different than mine. I can see something. Why is in Ecuador? Boy, I bought this lounging gown. I bought, uh, you know. I ain't seen that thing. I've been back home for three years. Because it's not her taste. Now, that's not anything bad. My wife has a different taste, and she'll only wear things that really, what she thinks is suitable to her. Not so much what I like, but the things she does, she makes herself look pretty good. See? These old eyes haven't went dim yet, See? and they really still appreciate. But I've learned well, I got to be careful what I buy because my heart may be in the right place. But that may not be what she wants or she likes. And David's heart was in the right place. He wanted to build this thing. 
He wanted to build this temple. And God says, no. And David said to Solomon, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord, my God. But this word of the Lord came to me. You have shed much blood and have fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name. No matter what your desire is, God says what? No. Now, understand this sometime. God says no. Even to your desire. And we'll quote the verse, oh, God gives me the desires of my heart, so I can just go ahead and do that. No. Your heart may be desiring something. And when we get on the area of pastors, in the Timothy, he says, boy, it's a good thing for a man to desire the office. The question is, is it God's will? Two different things. You can desire something. But is it God's will? A pastor the other day was talking to me. And he was telling me what he was troubled at and and the things still trouble him. And my question to him was this. Do you know that you were called? You can desire to do something. And you're doing it. But on the long term, you'll find out if you're really called or not because of the endurance that you have. A lot of pastors drop out within the first two years of ministry because they never thought the burden would be so heavy. They never knew what they were going to go through. And they leave the ministry within the first two to three years. But if you are really called, that call is what holds you at times. That call is the only thing sometimes you have to depend upon and rest upon that you know God called you. That makes a huge difference. Because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight, but you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest. And I will give him rest from all the enemies on every side. His name will be Solomon. And I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. He is the one who will build a house for my name. God is the one who chooses that it would be Solomon that would build his house. That it would be Solomon. Go over in verse 14 real quick. He says, I have taken great plans to provide for the temple of the Lord. David says, huh? There are great plans. So these plans are all laid out now. For what God, I believe, has given to David, but David just couldn't build it. Now, in Matthew 16, 18, Something takes place here. Go there with me. Matthew 16. And verse 18. And this is a fine dividing line. 
Does God build or does man build? Is it God's plan or is it man's plan? That is a fine, fine line, but it always has to be answered. Is this something God is doing or is this something that man is doing? That is important to be able to answer, especially in leadership. Is this of God or is this my own desire? Is this something God is going to do and God is going to sustain and God is going to allow it to have longevity? Or is this just within one lifetime, one experience? In Matthew, in that verse 18, this is what Jesus says. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, just the word I hear now, I will build what? My church. Not Peter. I will build whose church? My church. Now as the pastors need to correct a lot of people, and sometimes even with people who will say, oh, that's Pastor Brown. Say, no, no, that ain't my church. I'm going to leave it one day. That's the people's church. That's God's church. See, That's God's church. Why? Jesus is building his church. I'm just fortunate enough to just to be in a small part of it. That's all. But Jesus is building his church. And that's the thing we need to understand. It's not my church. It's not pastor's church. It's not a denominational church. The church belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Each and every one of you belong to who? Him. Not to a denomination. Not to a church that has the name out front, but each and every one of you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, I will build my church. Now understand this principle also, what's happening here. This is the first time that the apostles or that the disciples hear about this church. And the only other place in the Gospels that is mentioned again is in uh, chapter 18 of Matthew. Church. rest of the time in the Gospel, nothing about church. Nothing. First Corinthians, he talked about church. Philippi, he talked about church. Other times he's using the word saints and so forth. In Revelation, he speaks about the seven churches. So in the whole part of New Testament, there's not a lot, per se, about church and how it is organized and how it is to be functional. He kind of leaves that up to the people. He didn't do what he did in the Old Testament and say, here are the ways in which you're going to bring offerings. Why? You don't need the offerings. Why? Jesus Christ already died for us. So we don't need all those sin offerings. We don't need all those things that took place in that Old Testament. And and then 
boy, even when it comes to the temple, God doesn't design our churches per se. So in the church, the issue is this here. And I want you to catch this. In the church, depending on where you are located, the Holy Spirit begins to do the building and the direction of ministry through the giftedness of what he desires to put into the people because it is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Your gift is not your gift. It is the gift of the Holy Spirit that exercised that gift through you. You cannot exercise that gift outside of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) It takes the Holy Spirit to exercise that spiritual gift through you. You can't do it in and of yourself. It takes the Holy Spirit to do it. And the Holy Spirit then, who's not going to speak of himself, but of the Lord Jesus Christ, and teaches all things that even have not been written in this book, is going to teach us the things that God wants for a designated area of where you're at to do ministry. And sometimes ministry might look similar, but it's not. It is not given to man to build God's church, the Lord Jesus Christ's church. But we are to be helpers. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We are designed to be helpers. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And and it's so important to, to catch this whole process that we understand it. Because there's no other foundation that man can lay than who? Than the Lord Jesus Christ. Anything that we do is just building on what he has already laid. We're just responding to what he's already, in a sense, done or is doing. He tells us in verses, let's go from one to nine, we get a better picture of it. Brothers, look what he calls them, brothers. But look what he says to them. He says, I could not address you as what? Spiritual. But as worldly. Where's their mind? Their mind and their heart is not on spiritual things. They're on what? And therefore, when your mind is on worldly things, guess how you fight? Guess how you argue? Guess how you act? Guess how you betray yourself? Guess how you are seen? You're not seen as, boy, the written epistles. You're not those epistles that Paul talked about that are read. People reading the wrong thing here. And sometimes we need to be careful because we're always read by men. Men are always reading our life. People are always looking at our life. And people are always then talking. Oh, they call themselves a Christian? And they're making that judgment by what they see because our behavior does not line up with Scripture. Don't think the unbeliever don't know Scripture. They know enough to call us a hypocrite when we act like one. And he says, brothers, 
I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly. Mere infants. In other words, you haven't matured yet. You're still acting as babes, the way you're fighting, the things that you're doing to each other. I gave you milk, not solid food. He treated them like what? Like babes. And he goes on, for you were not yet ready for it. And understand in the church sometimes, people are not ready for it. E.B. Hill with a council, with a conference with him. I remember what E.B. Hill said. <laughs> he said, pastors, don't go around telling the church what your vision is. He said, there's a time to tell it. You want to tell them a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. He said, you want to take a good lesson. Look what happened to Joseph. If you want to wind up in a hole like Joseph, tell them your whole vision. God gave things to Joseph. He went off and told his brothers, even told his dad, and and, and he, you gonna do, you gonna be over us, you. And they finally put Joseph in a hole. Don't y'all put me in a hole. But E. V. Hill made a lot of sense. Because sometimes, even as you share, without spiritual understanding, people can't what? Yeah. Because we're looking at the world. We're counting how much money it's going to take, who's going to do it, this and that. We go through all of our fleshly stuff. Understand something. If God before you, who can be what? And if God wants something done, who's going to prevent it? Gamaliel spoke truth. Men, if you do this to these men, you're not fighting against men. You're fighting against God. If it's not of God, let it go. And guess what it'll do? It'll just fall to the wayside. But when something's of God, you cannot stop it from happening. It takes time because God's not in a hurry. But you can't stop it. If it's really of God... And the people who are then for it got to really constantly be checking themselves. Is this for God? Is this for God? And he goes on in that verse. He says, boy, I'm going to jump down real quick a little bit. Come down into uh, verse 8 with me. The man who plans and the man who waters have one purpose. And each will be rewarded according to his labor. For we are God's fellow, what? Workers. And the increase, Paul talks about, has to come from who? From God. One will plant, one will water, but who gives the increase? God does. God does, not man. God always does the providing. God always gives what is needful. If it's of him. Dr. Budna used to tell us, boy, Always remember this. It takes a step of faith to first step out before God will provide you. And in the fleshly part, we're always looking for God to do what? To provide before we step out. That's the security sometimes we need in the fleshly realm. But when God says step out and you know it's him, you step out. That's your obedience. And he goes on, he says, we 
are God's fellow workmen, workers. It's not that we're left out the picture, but we need to know who's really doing the work. And he, then he tells us, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid by who? Jesus Christ. If he's not the first one at work at it, all your work is in vain. Unless the Lord builds a house, the watchman what? Watches in vain. It has to be first from God. And he has to do it. Here is that fine line between man doing it or Jesus doing it. Man goes out and finds it without God's input. Because it's in his heart. He wants to do this. And you've got to really ask, are you doing this for the Lord? Or is the Lord doing it through you? Catch the difference? One, you're doing it because, boy, this is what you want to do. And you've got to go out here and you've got to make it all work. You've got to put it all together. You've got to do this and you've got to do that. Then that's you. But with the Lord, he has a way of just bringing it to you. Bringing it to you. Bringing it to you. And he won't let you rest until you do what he says he wants done. He don't, you don't move any further until you tackle that and deal with that. And you may not understand, Lord, why are you doing Lord, that don't make sense. No, obedience always makes sense. Obedience always makes sense. And that is what is risky sometimes. Being obedient to God can be risky. When Peter stepped out of the boat, that was a risk. When Paul then went into jail, that was a risk. Being obedient to God is willing to take a risk and trust him, not your own intellect, not your own knowledge, not leaning on your own understanding, but in all your ways, you're talking with God and you're allowing him to order your steps because he's the one directing you. The question is, are we listening? Are we listening? And a lot of Christians are not listening to God. They can quote scripture, but they're not doing it. They can know scripture, but they're not living it. Why? Because in disobedience, the Holy Spirit does not activate the scriptures that are true in your life. And therefore, you're living in your own power rather than living under the authority and power of the Holy Spirit. Huge difference. Huge difference. It is that God brings it to man. And then God shows it. God reveals it. I'm like Moses sometimes. Lord, bring them all up on the mountain. Lord, I don't want to go down and say nothing to these folks. Lord, you don't see their faces. Lord, you don't hear their comments. Lord, you bring them on up to the mountain and you tell them what you want. And people say, well, that don't work that way today. Yes, it does. God still speaks to pastors that have his heart and want to do his will. And that takes place. In this area, just follow with me as we get ready to close out. 
and, and really catch this. In Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, Jesus says to the apostles where they head out, because he wanted to assure them of something. Remember the centurion with Jesus? The centurion said, all you have to do is speak the word. Because I am a man under authority, and I have authority, and I can tell this soldier, go do this and go do that. He understood authority. He understood his power and what he could do. And here Jesus says, all authority has been given to who? To me. If the church can just grasp that truth, that all authority is in one person, Jesus Christ. If all authority is in him, nothing can hurt me without first doing what? Getting by him. Because he has all authority over my life, everything I do in my life, over everybody's life, whether they are believer, unbeliever. He has final say. He has final authority. And he says to them, I have final authority. When the church wakes up to that reality, the church is a powerful force. Because the church, only thing, only thing they have to do is get the understanding of this. God said go. God said do. God said. And he has all authority. And we understand the battle is not ours. The battle really is whose? It's his. It's the Lord's battle. And if God be for me, who can what? Yeah, even sometimes when I stand by myself, boy, God gives the victory. And you have to trust him in that. First Peter, Christ is the chief shepherd. You have to understand that principle. It is not Pastor Brown who is the shepherd of your life, really. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're hearing him, if you have a heart for him, he will shepherd you. He will guide you. He will order your steps. He will lead you into good pastures. He will take care of you because he is your shepherd. And you are his lamb. And he knows that you're defenseless. And he knows you can't take care of yourself. And he becomes that shepherd of your life. He is the chief shepherd over each and every one of us. Then in 22 it says, Jesus is the head of all things in the church. It's not the pastor. It's not the board. Yes, they interact, and yes, we're searching for God's will. But Jesus is the head of his church. No question about it. One of the things that I have the privilege of doing around his church is sometimes mopping the floor. Some of the things I do around here help me to remember who I am. 
and that it really is a privilege to be a pastor. That I don't heap it upon myself. Some pastors heap it upon themselves. And when they come into work, they don't come in to do anything. They just come in with their suit on, sit in their office, and direct. That, that's not being a pastor. That's not being a pastor. A pastor is an example in all things, even in working. If you can mop the floor, I can mop the floor. If you can clean the bathroom, I can clean the bathroom. If God given me skills to do certain things, I should want to do them for what purpose? To glorify him. For whatever your hands find to do, do it how? With all your might, all your gusto, with everything in you, do it. Why? For whatever you do, you do it for the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink, you do it for his glory, for his praise. Whether I put a light bulb in, I'm doing it for his glory, his praise. If I'm doing this, it's for his glory and his praise. And what a privilege it is to remind myself. Because I have the title of pastor, that doesn't give me any special privileges. And sometimes... Especially in African American culture, it's very easy for this man to get jealous because I don't do nothing, but I tell him to do everything. Or I'm looking at this man to go do it, but I don't do nothing. Or I'm telling this man to do something that I wouldn't even want to do or touch, but I'm telling him to do it. We cause our own problems within the church. Where Jesus has called me to be the example in what? All things. Not just the example in loving my wife. Not just the example of loving my children. Not just the example of teaching the word. But in every facet of life, he's called me to be an example. Therefore, as Paul says, I know how to live up here, but I also know how to live what? Down here. I know how to be the head, the CEO, but I also know how to be the janitor. Allow yourself to learn that. Because in our society, we just might have lifted the pastor way above what God ever intended. Let's close out. Because we miss seeing that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And Ephesians 5.23, he will care for his church. He will take care of his church. In First Corinthians, he says, in the church, God has appointed people to function. And we'll pick up some of that next, next, next week. Because, see, the church is made up of people who want to function. And when you look at Ecclesiastes and so forth, God feeds, God takes care of, get to Ecclesiastes. He talks about not just one, but two or three sticks doing what? Being tied together. Because they're harder to what? To break. In the church, the reason we come together, because, see, what Gus Brown can't do by himself, we can do what? Collectively. I'm important, but guess what? You're important. You're important. You're important. It's not your intellect that's important. Because God can take a donkey and preach a sermon. 
just the heart. And we are all, the greatest title for all of us is that we're a bondservant for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not reverend, it's not doctor, it's not professor, but I am a servant of the Most High God. I'm a servant. You're a servant of the Most High God. That's all we all are, our servants serving in different capacities. But he brings us together. He tells us, don't neglect the coming together. Why? That's our strength. That's our checking point. I'll check your life. You'll check my life. I'm an example for you. You're an example for me. Where I'm weak in a certain area, you're strong in a certain area. We are there sharpening each other. We're helping each other. We're challenging each other. We're questioning each other. That's the church. Closing. I can get there now. Church is people, not a building. And we need to understand that. Church is people, not a building. Church is people. People of different color. People of different ethnic backgrounds. People with different languages. There's not a black church, white church. Chinese church, Spanish church, there's only what? The church. The church. The church. And we are the church. We are. We got to get back to some of these biblical principles. We are the church. It don't matter who sits next to you. We are the church. It doesn't matter about your history. Why? Paul says, put that behind what? And then press on. You are the church. Now, live it as believers. And we're going to be on this subject a while, the church. Because what we have to tear down some is some of the myth of the church and the reality of church. And we have to understand this principle too. Usually the church operates 20 years behind itself. It doesn't keep up with culture. The church is very slow to change. And the worst thing about church is trying to make it change before it's time. And God has a way of just bringing in a new generation, bringing in something new, something different. Because the church, historically, if you check, usually operates about 20 years behind society. It's just part of our norm because the church doesn't change quickly. Father, we want to thank you and praise you for your word. And Lord, as we continue on this subject in the next coming weeks, may you truly minister to us. May you help us to see the church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Not the traditional church that we're accustomed to per se but the church of people living in the dynamics of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray that we would be a church that is after your heart, that is after your will, and that, Lord, we function as one body and one mind 
in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to grow. Help us, Lord, to believe you in all things that you will challenge us with. Help us to believe that you are the one who is keeping this church. You're the one who brought us to this place. You're the one who pointed out this place. You're the one who gave us money from outside of this church to pay off this land. You're the one, Lord, who even, in a sense, really helped us, Lord, to pay off the building. There's nothing about Aquiline's Fellowship that is really, truly, 100% done by the people of the church itself. But that somehow, Lord, you have stepped in from outside and you have sustained us, you have kept us, you have blessed us. I don't always understand it other than to know this. You want this church to continue on because you kept it. And you're the one that's building it. Not Pastor Brown, not the elders, not the future pastors, but Lord, you are the builder of the people that make up the church that is called Aquiline Lions Fellowship. May you continue to do the work in each and every one of our lives and we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name.